You're listening to That Music Podcast with me, Bryson Tarbett. I'm the music educator and blogger behind That Music Teacher and ThatMusicTeacher.com. Join me as I dive into what it really means to be a music educator. I hope that you're able to find a nugget of inspiration each week as I share my favorite ways to create purposeful instruction through active music making. Along the way, you'll hear from some of my amazing colleagues as they share practical advice that you can apply to your own classrooms. So grab a coffee, sit down, and let's get started. This episode is brought to you by my free guide on five ways to better serve students with exceptional learning needs. It can be hard to try to best serve your students with exceptional needs in the music classroom, but it doesn't have to be. There are some simple steps that you can take to help your students while also taking some of the stress off of your shoulders. In this free PDF guide, I'll share five of my top tips for better serving those students that might have exceptional learning needs in your classroom. To claim your free PDF copy, head on over to thatmusicteacher.com slash exceptional learners. This interview was absolutely a blast to record. Um, Darlene is Amazing if you've never seen her on TikTok or on Facebook or or Instagram and things like that. She is absolutely amazing. Um, And I'm so glad that she was able to be a guest on the podcast. Darlene is a TK through sixth grade elementary music educator, chorus director, private piano teacher, and podcaster in Southern California. Her experiences include designing curriculum, directing studio music programs, leading professional development, and training new teachers. She's passionate about creating student-centered learning environments and is a firm believer in knowing better, doing better. She holds two bachelor's of music degrees in music education and piano performance from Biola University and is currently pursuing a master of music education from Vandercook College of Music. I thoroughly enjoyed being able to chat with Darlene and I really hope they're able to find the episode as informative and as fun as I did. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to That Music Podcast. Today, I am super excited to talk to Darlene Machacon about music education and doing it in a responsive and responsible way to make sure that we're taking care of our students' cultural and all the different identities in the music classroom. So Darlene, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Bryson. Super, super pumped to be here. So Darlene, before we get started on our main topic today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, so where you went to school, um, what, where and what do you teach and things like that? Sure. Um, I'm an elementary music teacher and chorus director in Southern California. I also teach private piano lessons uh, for all grades. And in elementary schools, I teach at two public schools and I teach transitional kindergarten, which is like kindergarten for kids who are not five years old by a certain age, (laughs) um, up until sixth grade. And I also direct the fifth and sixth grade chorus, but unfortunately, as of now, chorus has been canceled due to the COVID pandemic. Many tears, many tears. (laughs) So um, yeah, that's my situation as of now. I went to Biola University for a double music degree in music education and in piano performance. And I'm currently getting my master's in music education from Vandercut College of Music in Chicago, which of course is not in Chicago right now, (laughs) because (laughs) COVID-19 pandemic. (laughs) Well, awesome. So I know that you are a very multifaceted person. Um, If you guys have not seen, if you guys have not seen her TikToks, you need, they are the best thing. I live for them. Oh, Um, (laughs) (laughs) what is something other than teaching that you're passionate about or that brings you joy in your life? Goodness, this is such, this is a really important question to 
I guess I just ask ourselves in general, because I feel that as teachers, we are already very passionate about, about what we do. So especially music teachers, we're passionate about music, we're passionate about music education, and we're passionate about making sure music education still flourishes. And I think it's very tempting to make teaching like our passion and that's it. But to also say, hey, we are definitely more than a music teacher, like what Franklin Willis yes. would say, uh huh, and that we have lives outside of education. So for me, I've definitely had to sit down and reflect, okay, what do I like to do outside of teaching? So one things that definitely make bring me joy is creating. And that could be anything from <laughs> making a TikTok, which is definitely <laughs> creating, um, painting. Lo- I love um, doing watercolors, um, writing a song or making beats on Soundtrap or like even improvising on the piano. Anything that's creating and really igniting that creative part of my artistic spirit. And I think part of especially teaching in this pandemic where we kind of have to build from scratch sometimes and really think outside of the box part of I mean I hate that I have to also mention teaching into it but definitely the creative part of um, creating lessons where I'm like okay I need to design this slide and Um, I need to, you know, create this lesson a specific way because what I've done before isn't working. And so when I realize that in myself, I think, okay, when I'm done teaching, I need to continue to find ways to be creative. And so, yeah, that's what I love to do outside of teaching, which can be very hard. I will be very (laughs) honest about that. (laughs) 100%. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of what let you let what led you to pursue a degree in music education? And how did you end up where you're teaching now? Yeah, sure. So I remember in high school, I at first wanted to be a film composer. I distinctly remember watching the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe in the movie theaters. And I remember that opening scene where they have the train go by and I go, oh, I want to make music like that. And I went to, uh, let's see, I believe it's called CISA. That those are the, um, that's the acronym for California State Summer School of the Arts. Oh, how cool. In... Goodness, I am blanking out the name of the school because brain. (laughs) But yeah, it's a summer arts program for all high schoolers um, all around California. And I believe Zac Efron did the program. Um, James Franco did the program in the past. So we've had a couple, you know, famous names there for And it's just for all (laughs) different kinds of arts, like dance and writing and and acting, things like that. So I went there specifically for music composition because I thought, I'm going to be a film composer. And so this is my way to figure out this is right for me. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I loved it. I definitely love my experience. We learned how to play gamelan ensembles. We did John Cage pieces. But because music composition was my focus... A good chunk of my day was, you know, being in the the lab on Logic Pro and working on these different projects. And I remember the last week thinking, okay, maybe this really isn't for me. Because yes, even though I love creating, I think I met my max. Thought, oh my goodness, I don't know if I could create this much. This is actually really exhausting for me. And so I feel that, especially as a creative, it's important to find the parts where I'm like, okay, maybe this isn't really for me, and I'm not going to force myself to do something where I 
really don't feel like I'm blossoming in. So after that program, I thought, never mind, maybe I'm not going to be a film composer. I'm like, okay, so what do I do? And I remember talking to my theater teacher when we got back um, from the summer, and um, he said, why don't you consider looking into music education? And that was actually the first time that he meant, not the, fir- not the first time he mentioned that, but that was the first time I heard that that was actually an option. So then I looked into it, different things like that. And long story short, I got in as a music minor because my audition was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> but I ended up, you know, um, re-auditioning again even though my piano teacher said, hey, I think you should do piano performance instead of music education. And I looked at her going, no, I want to be a teacher. And I ended up just doing both because I couldn't decide, (laughs) even though everyone said, no, nobody does this. Nobody majors in both of them because, well, Biola Biola University is also a uh, Christian university, and they also require their students to take 30 units of biblical or theological, I can't talk today, Let's just say biblical, let's <laughs> say biblical <laughs> courses. And so a lot of people say, hey, if you're doing a double major, I mean, don't forget you have your general ed classes, things like that. But I thought, nah, let's do it. I'm just going to go for it. And I came out alive <laughs> in five years. I bet that because was quite a whirlwind. <laughs> it was a whirlwind. I thought, how did I survive? I still think back and go, how did I, how did I have 14 hour days? pursuing a double degree, plus also, you know, having, I also worked as a barista to help pay for books and different things like that. So it was, it was definitely a lot, (laughs) but I'm I'm very thankful for my experience there. And for my student teaching experience, I, um, I taught in a school district nearby and it just so happened that, so I just so happened that the following semester, they were having, I believe, nine open positions for elementary music teachers, which is unheard of. So I thought, well, I probably have an in because I student taught with them. So here we are. I am still teaching at that district. And actually, this one of the schools I teach at is the school that I student taught at back back then. So my current my current upper graders, my current sixth graders, I've taught them since they were little first graders. It's oh my really goodness, that's cute. awesome. Uh-huh. And they still think like, wait, your name was this name and now it's this name because, you know, I got married. So <laughs> it's really fun. And I think, oh my goodness, I hear their voices change. And I remember, I go, oh, I remember when you were just a little wee one. So yeah, that's where I'm at right now. And I'm super pumped to be teaching in my school district. That is awesome. So now I want to go ahead and shift to the real meat of, of today's episode, because I think this is something that is really, really important. Um, but what to you, at least, what does it mean to teach responsively? And, you know, and why is that important? Yeah, so for me, I, when I think teaching responsively, I think that means truly centering students and their learning, and that could include consistently getting feedback from them, um, hearing their thoughts on a, on a lesson you've done, um, making sure you hear their opinion on certain concepts or on certain lessons you've done, and yeah, making sure that includes students have um, a chance to share their thoughts because, well, I think it's important because students are not just, in my view, I don't think students are passive sponges 
in their learning. I believe that students are to be partners with the teacher. And I remember listening to a podcast, and I can't remember which one, but I remember the person saying um, to rephrase the word student to learner. Because I think there's maybe this connotation that, oh, students are just people who just sit there, absorb the knowledge, and regurgitate the knowledge, and there you go. The end, they've learned. But I think when we transform it to being a learner, I think that really opens up a lot of opportunities for for teaching to be done in various ways. Um, And I feel that can be difficult with our experiences growing up because I feel that a lot of us didn't really grow up in that teaching partnership sort of um, environment where the environment was more like, oh, the teacher knows everything. And so the student has to just copy and learn. But I feel that when we teach responsibly, that's how we also promote student value. And that's also how we can show that students are seen in the classroom. I love what how you just ended that, making sure that students are seen in the classroom, because I think that is something that is so easy to forget, is that our our curriculum and what we teach, we want our students to be able to have their life experiences, their culture, their and all of their identities validated in what we mm-hmm. do. Yes. And that can be so hard and and honestly, it can be really easy to kind of plow right over. Um, but I don't know about you, but I firmly believe that if we make sure our students feel validated in our classroom, I have a feeling they're going to be way more involved and way more engaged in oh, what yes. we're doing. Oh, I agree. Yeah. And I think of, I just, for me personally, I always have to think, okay, if I were a student in this lesson, how would I feel? And so I just remember growing up being in school and I would look at the materials and think, okay, just, I mean, I hate to say it like this, but, oh, another white person on the cover. Cool. But then I would also remember how I felt if I would see an Asian American being featured in a book. I go, oh my goodness, it's someone that kind of looks like me. And I feel my excitement there because in a lot of traditional classrooms, a lot of traditional educational materials, it's usually a a certain um, culture that is dominating in a lot of our in a lot of our content. And so I feel that if I'm personally excited as a Filipina seeing, I mean, of course, Asia is a continent, but seeing Asian Americans being featured, I'm like, okay, if I feel this way as an adult, how do my students feel if I really truly feature them, especially if they're students who are not um, seen a lot in our materials. That is something that is, is huge. And I think especially in music education, just because of the history of music education, a lot of times it can get really focused on the old dead white guys. And Ooh, yes, <laughs> like, and I, I do believe that there is a trend that is moving away from that, but you know, the classical music culture and thinking you know even even thinking about your you know music schools and stuff it's so rooted in again the old dead white guys that i think it really takes a conscious effort for music educators to make that change um and sometimes people get kind of stuck in not wanting to to make that change because they don't know what exactly to do to do it right. So going off of that, what do you think people get wrong about responsive teaching and teaching music in a way that allows our students to feel validated in our rooms? 
I like what you mentioned about, oh, the dead white guys, because I think part of the reason, and it could be, actually, there are many reasons, but definitely part of the reason is how institutions, colleges, universities have trained music educators and and what their emphasis is in their program. Like for me personally, there were two different tracks I could do, um, choral music and instrumental music. But as a pianist, I thought, oh, where do I belong? So, so I ended up going the choral music route. And a lot of the works that I studied and um, worked on were actually uh, more of the Western classical tradition. And I there wasn't really an elementary music track. And I eventually, you know, loved elementary music and decided to go that route anyways. But I feel that when people maybe at first hear, oh, responsive teaching, the immediate um, response response to that is, oh, I, that's not how I was taught back then. But I feel that as teachers, we need to be aware that not every single student can learn best in the same traditional manner that we were taught growing up. Like I will also always see stories of um, students or even, you know, adults saying, oh, okay, I connected with some teachers, but I didn't connect with other teachers because they taught this way. And so a lot of the times those students who were like, oh, yeah, I definitely connect with those teachers. I definitely learned a lot from them was because, well, they truly felt that their voices were heard. And and I also see comments saying like, oh, that's not how education has always been. We're always changing things. Oh, there's another new thing to learn. Oh, SEL, another thing. Cultural responsiveness. Oh, another thing. But first of all, teachers should always be continuous learners, just like our students. That's how we model learning for them. And then number two, education is always changing. Our society is always changing. Kids are changing. I mean, we have Gen Z. Gen Z kids are definitely different from millennial kids. Um, And so I think that education definitely has to um, transform because our society is rapidly changing. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Oh my goodness, so many thoughts. <laughs> First, I it <laughs> tell up, me um, all of them. <laughs> it brings up what um, Amaleski says a lot that you know, education is time bound, situational, and ever changing. And I think that's something yes, that yes. <laughs> the easy answer is to do the same thing you've always done. And unfortunately, that isn't that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing. I think we all know teachers, whether it be music teachers or not, that are teaching the same lessons that they saw taught for twenty years. Um, uh-huh. And to a certain degree, that's fine. But if you're teaching those those things just because that's what you've done, that's not a good enough answer, at least for me, to continue teaching them the way you taught. If you're teaching oh, yeah, th- yeah. those things because your students are engaged, your students feel seen and feel valued, your students are learning through high engagement, like that, that's fine to keep doing it. But I think we really need to look at what we're doing and be aware of not only the community that we teach in, um, but the time we're teaching in. For instance, you know, we're teaching right now in a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. The way we're teaching now for a variety of reasons is incredibly different. And oh, yeah. I think if, if we were to continue teaching the way that we've always taught, it clearly wouldn't work. Oh, and no, I, yeah. I think that we need to be aware of the changes so that we can best serve the students that we see. Exactly. And unfortunately, how it was before was not always inclusive. 
that's the big thing that that I believe educators have to realize now, especially if they're like, oh my goodness, I can't do what I used to do. Of course you can't do what you used to do. And I feel that this pandemic is really forcing teachers to truly think, wait, is my practice actually meeting the needs of not just meeting the needs of every single student, but are they all engaged? Are they do they all feel seen? Yeah. Oh my goodness. There's I love this conversation. <laughs> We so, can keep going. I know. <laughs> Do we have a time limit? <laughs> so moving into, so this is going to be a tricky one. <laughs> so oh boy. a lot of times you see in these Facebook groups, you see responsive teaching coming out in these huge posts that are not going so well, <laughs> to, to say the least. And But basically, I think that there there are ways that those that are responding to these groups that seem stuck in their ways and they, do, they don't seem to see any reason to changing what we've done. Um, what would you say to those teachers, especially when it comes to those teachers that are saying, well, I've always used this song. Now that I know it, it has ro- racist roots, it, it's not racist anymore. What would you say to that? Well, let's hope that those teachers are listening to this podcast. <laughs> no, um, you know, that is a really tricky question because for me, before I answer it, for me personally, I feel that, well, if someone is so stuck in their ways and they just truly believe that, then I will, you know, I will go, okay, I'm not here to change their mind, um, but I feel that I'm here to at least provide perspective, um, encouragement, and hopefully reflection because I feel that um, we can't really force people to change their minds, but when we have enough evidence and enough grace and especially, you know, being kind with each other on social media, then I feel that can definitely lead to change. But oh my goodness, the whole folk music thing and a lot of problematic repertoire. Yes. And I feel that especially if you're so used to doing um, a certain way that can be hard to really think outside of the box. But what I found very valuable, especially looking through, (laughs) looking through many different comments and Goodness, if I see a Facebook post and I see like 300 comments on the side, I go, hmm, do I have time to read through this? Do I have the, like, I have to actually think, do I have the emotional capacity to read through all this and all the different replies? But I found what has been most valuable is when different people share their perspectives and their stories, how they have felt excluded or they have felt hurt from traditional experiences or so from some different choices. So yes, we can say, oh, here, here's the evidence to support that this has racist roots. Here is the history, why blah, blah, blah. Cool. But then when people come and say, hey, when I heard this, I felt a certain way. That's when you really see the humanity in the damage that has been done. So there, yeah, there's history. But what I feel that when people say, hey, um, I know so-and-so who was hurt by this, or hey, like, if you truly feel that music education is for all and music education welcomes everyone, then we have to consider some of these choices here. So definitely adding the the human part to um, the experiences I've, I've seen have been very helpful in encouraging reflection and hopefully change. That was a really good way to to view things like that. Because I, I mean, me personally, I just recently learned about, you know, Jingle Bells. Um, 
coming from the minstrel shows. And oh, yeah. that's something, you know, me as a white man, I was like, oh, wow, that's a song that like I sing. I sang last year at our Christmas sing along. Like I, that's something that I use in my piano curriculum. Yep. Um, and, mm-hmm. and it's I was like, whoa, I I didn't realize that. I never would have thought that a song like that was um, something that I included in my curriculum. Um, but when in that one of those Facebook posts, I saw someone that basically the post was asking, you know, what this is something that's been in our culture for so long, even if it, you know, it came from that, what could we just teach it for the history that it has now? Um, and I, someone put a comment that says, I don't know about you, but I haven't been on a sleigh dashing through the snow in a while. <laughs> and I'm like, especially really- here in California, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, we don't have sleighs. <laughs> and that really brought things that put things into perspective because you're right. The majority of my kids probably haven't had been on a horse drawn sleigh for a little bit. And it, if we're, uh, again, I keep bringing up Amaleski, but Amaleski talks about, you know, when you choose to include something, you're excluding something else. If we're choosing yep. to ex- in- include something that has this racist history, but also isn't really relating to what our students' lives are now, we're excluding so much else. So what can we find to put in that place that doesn't have um, a questionable or a racist background, but that also validates the life experience of our students? Exactly. And of course, we're going to have students that say, why can't we do this? Blah, blah, blah. But a bit, another standard in music education is encouraging students to become critical thinkers. So I think this is also an opportunity for educators to say, hey, I understand that you love Jingle Bells, but here are the reasons why we shouldn't do this song. And I mean, we don't have to really go into the deep um, history of it, especially for younger kids. But I think I remember seeing this in a comment on Facebook saying like, okay, for younger ones that ask why we can't do Jingle Bells, just say, hey, you know, in the past, this song was used in a form of music making that was meant to hurt other people. And and like, how would you feel if someone made a song that was meant to hurt you? And when we really bring that human part of it, then students will go, oh, never mind. I don't want to sing that. And I think, yeah, definitely putting that will go, okay, never mind. And so I think we shouldn't shy away from explaining reasons why we don't sing certain songs, because then we are also encouraging students to be critical about the music they listen to. Because yes, all me- like I think that all music is great, but certain music isn't great. And so doing this skill will also encourage students to be, hey, is this song really worth listening to? Let me look at the lyrics. Let me look at the history, because that's another skill that we should develop in our music makers. I love that you keep bringing it back to one, you're bringing it back to the students, um, which is a wonderful lens to look through things, but also, you know, talking about the human aspect of it, because I think it can be so easy, especially for those people that realize that, that what they've been doing isn't culturally sensitive or, you know, however you want to look at it is they're, they kind of dig their heels in because they're getting really defensive. Um, And I think that again, that comes from inaction is so much easier than making a change. But why do you think that so many teachers are so afraid of taking steps to make sure that they're being aware of cultural or whatever other implications in their teaching, especially in the repertoire that they're choosing? I'm going to say it like it is. They don't want to do the work. That's mm-hmm. really it. They think, oh, I already went to school for this. I've taught for this amount of years. So, yep, they don't want to do the work. They thought they've already done the quote-unquote amount of work by teaching that amount of time. 
Um, and again, like what we said earlier, teachers are supposed to be continual learners um, because students change, society is changing. Um, and part of that work isn't just showing up to school or in this case, Zoom or Google Meets or whatever, <laughs> and just going, well, I'm just going to recycle the same thing over and over again because this has worked for my kids for the past 20-something years. Um, and there's, there, I feel there's definitely danger in that because, like what we said before, what has worked in the past, especially if it is if it has history of not being inclusive, can do more damage than good, actually. And so I think when we present these things, it's important for, for teachers to also really reflect on, on their own biases, on their own assumptions. I mean, personally, I definitely had to do a lot of that. And I was in shock when I thought, oh, my goodness, a lot of my curriculum has been focused on this in the past. And like, what are my biases? Like, what were my experiences growing up that has determined how I teach now. And so, yes, a lot of reflection is part in changing what we do, but that's what you do. And I think another thing that some teachers will say, oh, wait, give me a list. Like, give me five, your top five ways to make sure you have diverse repertoire. And I have to go, no, 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 no. Like, transforming music education is not just five bullet points. A lot of it really does have to go. I have to sit down and sit on a couple things first. Um, and critically look at where my heart is, my even your teaching philosophy too. Like my teaching philosophy is definitely way different than it was back when I wrote it as a college assignment. <laughs> back in, I forget like some foundations of music ed course. I think at the time I was like, uh, yes, music is important and they should all learn how to read music or whatever, something weird like that. But we have to realize that, yeah, our philosophy will also change too. Um so, yeah, definitely a lot of reflection is important in this process. One quote that I hear a lot, um, especially on these Facebook co posts that have like 500 comments, um, is when you know better, do better. And yep. I think that is something we need to really understand because I know me personally, if, it, if it's a song like that isn't clearly racist or clearly based in um, harming others – you probably weren't being intentionally not inclusive. It's probably just one of those things where it's been in your repertoire and you, you didn't know, but once you do know, you don't get to pretend you don't anymore. <laughs> you don't have that ignorance. You have to do better. And once you know that a song is, um, once you know that a song is something that you shouldn't be using, you need to do better and make sure that you are changing the way that you're teaching. Yeah, for sure. And I feel that this reflection process doesn't just have to apply only to songs with minstrel roots. I mean, there are some songs that are out right now. Like, for example, one that I'm kind of have feelings <laughs> about is African Noel. Number one, there are 20 million different, well, not 20 million different versions, but I would say maybe two or three different versions of African Noel. And then just the the title, African yeah. Noel. And then I, I was looking at 
an online music resource and going, huh, they're using African Noel as part of their quote unquote Christmas unit. And I go, and I'm thinking, well, I haven't used this song ever because I've always thought it's, well, I just haven't used it. I've always felt problematic about it and I couldn't figure out why. So I thought, I'm just going to do the good old research on Google. And this is what I feel that a lot of teachers don't really do when they pick repertoire is they look into the history of it. So it turns out African Noel, at least the one that goes, sing Noel, sing Noel, that one. Um, it's actually taken from a Liberian folk song and and the words have nothing to do with Christmas or Noel or anything. It's about, um, yeah, it's about something else entirely. And so I thought, wait, where, how come we didn't say, okay, he, like everybody, here's a Liberian folk song, let's stick to this and whatever. I'm like, why did it all of a sudden turn into a quote unquote African carol? I'm like, that, that's not an African carol. And so I see people will say, oh yeah, we want to diversify your repertoire during the holidays. Let's use African Noel. It has a really good body percussion part to it. I'm going, hold, hold up, hold up. But when we just pick music like that, especially if it just framed African Noel, I mean, would you call a traditional Mexican folk song North American carol? No. <laughs> See, that sounds weird. Yeah. But then I'm like, that's where I have to sometimes like reframe things. I'm like, we th- we hear African no longer. Okay, cool. But I'm like, okay, but you wouldn't call um, a Canadian song, you know, North American tune. But yet some people are, are also okay with, oh, that Japanese, like a Japanese song. Oh, yeah, that's called the Asian whatever. Um, so I think there's, yeah, definitely a danger in that because especially when we – um, assign that or we use that in our program then it gives the student and directly gives the students this message of oh okay so i guess like all african music sounds the same you know yeah i think it comes from a place of making sure whatever whether you're a band director a choir director if you're teaching kindergarten making sure that whatever your music you're using is authentic because yes whether I mean, even if it's folk music or not, just making sure that what you're saying the music is is actually what it is. <laughs> yes, um, you know, exactly what it is. I mean, for one thing, one thing that kind of popped in my brain, I just as I'm talking, is you know, if you're saying, "Oh, this is a folk song from Africa," okay, can we be but more where? specific? <laughs> and and if you're gonna, or if you're gonna say, you know, this is a Native American folk song, could we be more True, specific? But what tribe? Or, or also, like, is it actually? Or is it something mm-hmm. that was composed in the style and has just kind of made its way into um, that that arena when it's when in, in reality it doesn't come from that authentic place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's definitely something that that definitely like a reflective part of when we're picking repertoire and things like that is looking at at the authentic roots about it. But again, some teachers, I mean, I'm going to call them out. Some teachers don't want to do that because here we go. They don't want to do the work. <laughs> exactly. So speaking about doing the work, what can mm-hmm. we do as music teachers, whether it be big or small, to take some steps in our classrooms, again, whether they're in person, on Zoom or whatever, <laughs> to make sure that cultural and other differences in history are being respected, talked about, and celebrated in different ways? Goodness, there is so much and i'm going to go a different route answering this i'm not going to really answer this in the bullet point list but the most crucial part before 
making sure that your classroom is inclusive and all cultures are celebrated is first looking at our biases and our assumptions is sitting down and reflecting. And of course, that doesn't mean, okay, sit down and reflect for 30 minutes. Okay, you're done. Sometimes this could take several days. And honestly, it should be a lifelong process. Um, we'll, we'll see things like, oh, being more anti-racist. And there is no certificate that says, you are an anti-racist educator. Good job. No more learning for you. <laughs> a lot of what um, anti-racist educators will say, this is lifelong work. And so for me, when I'm giving this advice, I always prioritize that like, hey, you can't just skip over to, okay, what are the bullet points? Where Where is the SparkNotes version of how to do this? It's like, we first got to realize that looking at our biases and looking at our identities and our privileges, our powers, that's really important to do first and to continue to do that throughout the entire process, because that will determine how you pick different repertoire, different things to add to your different curriculum. I could give many different I could give many different suggestions like do this, do that, but if I give that to people without saying, "Hey, but analyze where you're at," then it uh, then we actually lose the importance of truly um designing a more um inclusive atmosphere because we want to make sure we have that reflective component part down. That is a great answer. <laughs> I just, I've loved literally every answer that you've given. It's just super eye-opening and well put, and I, I just can't get over it. But Darlene, I, I'm <laughs> going to go a little bit. I'm going to go a little bit off the outline that I sent you earlier. But can oh, you no tell worries. us a little bit about your podcast and why you why you felt called to start one? Sure, it was actually an idea that my friend Nora had. Um, over the summer. So Nora and I are both music teachers in the same district. And we also went to college together. So we've known each other for a very long time. And I remember before we had this conversation of starting a podcast, I remember just sitting and going, oh, I have many thoughts. I want to share them. (laughs) And I want to encourage other teachers to hear different perspectives. And I remember um, having a conversation with Nora and she's going, you know, I've always wanted to start a podcast. And I go, wait, I want to start a podcast. And we think, well, it is way more fun to do a project with someone else. And so that's how it all started. We decided we want to do one together. And I remember we were looking through different my library of different podcasts and I go Nora I think we'll be the only music educator podcast with two uh, female music teachers of color I'm going oh my goodness and she goes yeah okay this is important and so we kind of um, started definitely of course amplifying our perspectives as um, her being Hispanic and me being a Filipino Filipina and Another thing is we've realized that because we've advertised it to our friends too, we've seen that, oh, half of our listeners aren't even teachers anyways. So we decided, you know what, in order for us to also advocate for education is to talk about bigger topics too, but from our perspectives and our experiences um, as people who aren't part of the dominant culture. Um, I will admit that there we're kind of on a little break because um, mental health is important. And so we don't want to force ourselves to do a podcast and we don't have the mental capacity to do it. But our heart was definitely to amplify 
different voices of color, especially in music education. And one encouraging thing that I've seen was when when I was growing up, I didn't really know any Filipino music teachers. And when in college, there was probably one or two other Filipinos in the entire music program. And in one of the comments on Apple Podcasts, or not the comments, one of the reviews, they said uh, one of the persons was, as a Filipino music teacher, like, I'm super excited to see this. And I think, oh, like, I would have loved having this podcast growing up and pursuing music education. So for me, I see this as a way to truly amplify. It's not just the Asian American community, but also my fellow Filipinos out there. That's great. And clearly, as if, if you're paying any attention to my podcast, I also took a break because life got insane. So I'm not going to hold anything against you there. Um, but I would definitely <laughs> recommend all of you to go check out the episodes that are up there. So Darlene, where can we find more about your podcast, your um, TikTok? Where can we find more about you? Sure. So my TikTok and Instagram have the same name. It's at the Darling, D-A-R-L-I-N-G, music teacher, because fun fact, Darlene actually means little darling, and I am barely five foot. There you go. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let's see, my podcast with my friend Nora is called Coloring the Melody. You can find us on all the platforms where you listen to your podcast, and you can also find us on Instagram at Coloring the Melody Podcast. All right. Well, I will go ahead and put all those links in the show notes. So if anyone wants to go check those out, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, Darlene, thank you so much for talking to me today. I have absolutely enjoyed being able to um, talk your ear off a little bit (laughs) and just be able to enjoy um, spending some time with another music educator, especially as we are currently quarantined um, because of life. (laughs) Yes, I loved having this chat. Thank you for this opportunity. All right. Thanks, Darlene. If you found this episode helpful at all, I would really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Not only does this help me understand what you find most helpful, it also helps more music educators just like you find the podcast. To check out the show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned, head on over to thatmusicteacher.com slash show notes.